Good evening. Join me in a word of prayer. Eternal Thou, we are grateful for this day and the journey of life such as it is. We're grateful for the opportunity to study, to come together, but more importantly, God, we are thankful for the opportunity to worship. God, now in this moment, be in this place through the singing, through the fellowship, and through the preaching. We ask you to stand in this body to proclaim your word and that the grace of God be available to all who hear. In mindful of all the names that you're known under the sun, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and Lord. Amen. I bring you greetings from all the way across the fence at Wesley Theological Seminary. Uh, our fall break and y'all's fall break occur at the same time, so our students are just now starting to come back, and your students, y'all are just starting to come back, and so uh, the anxiety levels are probably about the same uh, as you get higher and higher. But tonight I want to uh, thank uh, Rick for your hospitality, but also to uh, uh, Reverend Joey for his uh, leadership and friendship over the years. I've known him for several years, including when he was a student at Wesley Seminary. And so uh, glad that uh, he is right next door. And to the university chaplain now, Mark, I've known him for a while as well. And so grateful for the ministry here uh, at American University through the K Spiritual Life Center. Uh, there is a very uh, challenging but simple message on tonight I'd like to offer, and it's found in the epistle of James uh, in the New Testament. So if you've got your phones or whatever you use, it's in James chapter 1, and it's just four simple verses. Simple seemingly, but actually quite complex and challenging. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, this is what you would find in those verses. James chapter 1, 12 through 16. James, the epistle writer, says, Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. No one, when tempted, should say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desires, being lured and enticed by it. Then when that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and that sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, beloved. This is the word of God for the people of God, for which we can oddly say, thanks be to God. I want to just talk for a few moments from a simple subject, yet somewhat challenging. It's not them, it's you. It's not them, it's you. Confession. I have, since the beginning of this year, changed my eating habits. I'm older now, and I wouldn't just necessarily call it a diet, but I change what I eat and how I eat. Some folks call it elimination, an elimination diet. Others would call it a self-induced torture. <laughs> but essentially, I have cut out foods that put me at risk for developing things like diabetes. You know, cakes, pies, pastries, cookies, I have sadly decided to let go of. Sadly. Sadly. 
But I've also decided to cut out the foods that are categorized as hypoglycemic, foods that contribute to diabetes since it runs in my family. Foods like potatoes and bread and pasta and rice. And my wife is West African, and so rice is a fundamental part of that diet, so I'm just short. I'm in this thing by myself. Uh, but in addition to these foods, I've started uh, using uh, a smoothie, green smoothies, and a lot more protein, a little less of the simple starches, all that good stuff. And I've lost weight and I feel better and it's great. However, there are some meals and some foods and some moments that just seem like a setup for my failure. You know, it's the foods that you least expect when you're on a diet that get you. You know, it's not the sweet cakes, it's not the pies that get to me, you know, because I've got a way to satisfy a good sweet tooth, but it's when I'm in the refectory at Wesley and I smell hot grease and french fries. And can I just say there is nothing better under the sun than a good french fry. A tater tot, a hash brown, <laughs> smothered in onions, yeah, that, that gets me just about every time. And anybody that's been on a diet once or twice knows the temptation of what it means to, to have that one food that you can't have, and you've, you've just started, you know, you've, you've decided to give up sweets or you've decided to start working out and then someone just bakes you a pound cake because they were thinking about you. <laughs> Care package comes and it's a big pound cake from somebody back home, right? You know, it's the moment that you decided I'm going to eat salad for lunch and it's going to be great and then somebody brings in five guys and Georgetown cupcakes for the whole class. It's the moment when you finish eating, you know, broiled fish, steamed broccoli and a good sweet potato and somebody comes over and they've, they've decided to experiment with some dessert recipe they saw on Pinterest and they want to try it out on you. I mean, it's this kind of temptation that happens. And what I found when those moments of food temptation happen is that I often have a peculiar reaction and I've seen it in others. It's, you know, when I smell those french fries cooking or someone brings that cake, I'll usually say to the person or say to the chef, why are you doing this to me? Right? Or maybe you might say something like, don't you tempt me right now. Uh, and really, you know, I often am heard to say, you know, you're not going to get me in trouble on this diet. You're not going to get me caught up and you know you're trying to tempt me in this moment and tonight I want you to know that it's not just food temptations where we have those reactions it's all types of temptations where we put the onus at least semantically but probably instinctively on the person who brings the temptation you know, it's when you said the money wasn't worth doing that kind of work, but they double their offer and they start, and then you say, let me go pray over it and all this other stuff. And you start wondering whether or not God is tempting you and testing you to see if you can pass the test. You know, it's when uh, you, you've said, I'm not going to return that text message from that individual anymore. I'm not going to answer that phone call. But, you know, when it happens and it's late at night and, you know, there's nobody else and you say, why are you doing this to me? It's when you vow to be a different person and turn over a new leaf and that person that gets on your last nerve is back yet again and they're trying to call you back into your old ways. And all you can say is, they're tempting me. They're tempting me. 
Whether it's food or life situations, common, the common human practice is in tempting situations to blame the tempter. Blame the one who is bringing the cake while you're on the diet. Blame the one who rings your phone. Blame the one who uh, pushes you to do something that you said you weren't going to do. We blame them for tempting us. We blame others for the temptations in our lives. And worse yet, we begin to even theologize or put that notion onto God. You know, I've heard this in churches and we've heard this in churches time and again. The devil is trying to tempt me and the devil is sure enough busy. And some of us even go a step further and say, we blame God for allowing the temptation to come. What is he or she doing to us? Right? We say prayers like, Lord, why are you tempting us? Why are you allowing this temptation to happen? And we always blame them, the other, the external. However, the writer of this passage today suggests that the source of our temptation is a little bit closer to home, a little bit more intimate than they and other. For you see, the, the writer here is, is a writer to early Christian converts from Judaism. They're called, soul, uh, they're, they're called Jewish Christians, and uh, they're new to the faith, and they have all sorts of questions about what does it mean to be a disciple, questions that we all still have, like the nature of discipleship, the role of faith, the power of prayer, and all of those questions are really important. And, you know, it was common in the Roman world around them to be shaped by feats of strength. So your character was defined by how you could endure tests. So when a test came and you were strong or you said you were strong, then you would endure it. But and whoever was the, the more heroic was the one who could both give the test and pass the test. Since many of these Christians were not only Roman, but also Jewish of Jewish heritage, those these folks would also have been familiar with the tests of the Old Testament. For God put the prophets through many tests, tests of Abraham's faith or tests of Israel's faith or tests of the prophets or the judges. And God was often understood to be the source of our testing, but not necessarily the source of our temptation. James tells us most bluntly that God is not the source of our temptations. Frankly, we are. James writes, no one when tempted should say, I'm being tempted by God. For God himself tempts no one. God, God self tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desires, being lured and being enticed by it. James says that we, in, in effect, are our own worst enemy in this particular area. The temptations that we face are our own making and our own design. It's not them, it's us. That's a hard word for many of us, it's a hard word for me, because we often invest in ourselves and we believe in our ability to conquer just about anything, even with the power of Christ. We lead folks into thinking that somehow because we're Christian, we are just minding our business, walking along and everything's fine. We're trying to be holy, praying and reading our Bible every day. And when lo and behold, somebody comes out of nowhere and plop this temptation right in front of us. 
and entrapped us into doing something that we otherwise would have never thought about doing in a million years. James says that's a bunch of shenanigans. <laughs> Call shenanigans on it. But my friends tonight, the temptations in our life give insight to our own wants and our own desires. No one else's, not even God's. The God that we serve is not an eternal teacher always looking for another test to give the students. That's not the witness of love. That's not the promise of God that defines our faith. The reason temptation comes in our life is because they've always been a part of our life. Temptations are not about God. Those potatoes, that cake, that man or that woman. But temptations are solely about you and your approach, your belief, your feelings, your thoughts about that potato. Your thoughts about that cake. Your thoughts about that significant other. James said it's not them, it's you. It's us. And James writes this not because he's mean-spirited or wanting to criticize new disciples, but he writes this hard admonition so they are not deceived, so that we would know the truth. And it's sad that many Christians walk away with a false understanding of temptation. Because James wrote the letter to make sure we would have a right understanding. But I want you to understand that there are three simple things here that, that, that James offers us so that we can understand temptation and our relationship to it and simply how to live and endure. First, in the passage, temptation is a consequence of life and not some divine imperative. James says in verse 13, God cannot be tempted and God, God's self, tempts no one. Temptation is not a divine imperative. It doesn't come from God, yet it exists. It's present. It's a consequence of living in the world. In the writer's worldview, there are things that exist as a product of existence. It's just the way it is. God is the source of creation, but some things are just a good consequence. You know, evaporation is the consequence of heating water. Excrement is the consequence of eating and digestion. Decomposition is the consequence of death. And the consequence of living in this life means that from time to time, you will be tempted. Why? Not because God is tempting you, but because you are tempting you. Seems somewhat circular. But what you should recognize is that life is filled with all sorts of opportunities to be tempted. And when you recognize that temptation is a byproduct of life, just like inhaling and exhaling, you can start handling your temptation. In other words, tell the truth about yourself. It's not somebody else. I can't blame the chef for choosing the menu of hash browns just to destroy my entire life. No. Those potatoes are my problem to work through. And I've got to be willing to tell myself the truth then. Okay? Tell the truth about life and about yourself. And that leads me to my second point. And this is something that Christians get really... Uh, 
they problematize unnecessarily. And my students, I teach first year master's students at Wesley, and my students, they really get hung up on these kind of things when I start telling them this. But the second point here is our desires can be the gateway temptation, to temptation, but they are not the problem. Our desires can be the gateway to temptation, but that's, they're not the source of the problem. James says it this way, one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. Then when, when that desire has been conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, and that sin, when fully grown, gives birth to death. And it's pretty dark stuff that he's talking about. But let me be clear, James is not saying that desiring in and of itself is a bad thing. Y'all walking with me? Talk back to me now. Y'all walking with me? To desire justice in the world becomes a passion for justice. Desire is not the problem. One might desire peace and so spend their life trying to attain a goal for peace in their world, in their life, in their community, and the lives of others. You see, God is the architect of all life and built us with gifts, abilities, and desires. They aren't bad. They are gifts from God. These desires drive our life. They shape our being. They are part of the elements that God implants in each of us for our ultimate purpose and destination. We spend our lives trying to figure out how to pursue and enact desires, the things that we want to do, hopefully for the glory of God. As we grow in Christ or even just grow up, we become aware of what those gifts are and those desires are, and we want to live more into them. But the truth of the matter is that sometimes we get sidetracked in our desires. And we use our gifts and our abilities and our passions to address lives, address the situations, address livelihoods in ways that are not as productive. So we learn how to manipulate and stimulate. We politic, or as I like to say, we fake it till we make it. We do the okie doke till we get what we want and then we take it for our own selfish purposes. And we compete with each other for personal benefit. But our desires aren't the problem. It's what we do with them in living our life. Are we going to use our desires for our own benefit or are we going to use them to glorify God? Are our passions our own to do whatever we want? Or are we willing to give them back to God in ways that are beneficial and meaningful? Desires are the problem. It's really selfishness and doing what you want for your sake. Temptation, desire is, can be Desire can lead to temptation when selfishness is the factor. Last point, and I'm done. The temptation is not the intended end. James has an expectation that temptation is real, it's present, and it is conquerable. Even though in the moment there is nothing worse than a hot french fry staring at me and I can't do anything about it except eat it. And it seems like an eternity. But when you listen to people like me who are tempted, it off, you often think that it's the end of the world, right? That if they don't pass this tempting test, their living is not worthwhile, the diet is not uh, effective, and there's nothing else to be done. 
And we fall into the deception that if we don't get it right at the moment of temptation, then we are failures before God. We judge ourselves. We think it's the worst thing in the world, and we say we're not faithful disciples. But that's not what James says here. Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to show to, to those who love him. James says temptation doesn't last always, and it has no real power. James knows that you might find out what tempts you and how you're tempted. You may even find out why a thing tempts you. But the most important thing for you to know is that when you are tempted, there is an appointed end to temptation. When someone, the inference of the, of the, the verb endure here is that it shall pass. If you can live through it. And sometimes you just have to walk through the food court, past the boardwalk fries, close your eyes, and just keep putting one foot in front of the other, and pretty soon, you're not in the food court anymore. You let the phone ring until it stops. The text messages will eventually end. Beloved, you're not meant to be tempted without some help along the way. And James understands that we all have one who was tempted like we were tempted and understands how difficult it can be to be tempted. But he endured that temptation, even unto death, so that he could be a help to each and every one of us. And that is the good news, that there is help in the midst of your temptation. You can cry out to Christ. You can cry out to God in Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, experience power that lets you go through. I'll tell you one quick story. It's about food. Because <laughs> it really is talking about the reward. A few years ago, I did a similar diet, and I had a secretary who was a baker. <laughs> she was really good, a really gifted baker and a cook. She was often known to bring a pie or some brownies, and she's a stress baker, so whenever she got stressed, she'd whip up something. And It'd always be on Monday morning, they'd have brownies or cakes or something. And usually I could ignore it in the midst of this diet. I could walk past her desk and keep moving, but every now and again she would see my face get a little salty and, and I would stand a little too long in front of her desk and just look at the container she brought from home. She would apologize for tempting me, but you know, you know I would move on and get over it. Uh, but after a few weeks, she asked me what the nature of my diet was, and it was similar to the one I'm on now, and she apologized again, but one day she came in, and she came in the office, and she had uh, put on my desk a stack, a container of cookies. And I came in the office, and I just happened to have a strong taste for cookies. And there on my desk was a pile of about 30 cookies. And I was furious. <laughs> Why did you do this? Don't you know I'm on a diet? Don't you understand I can't this, that, and the other thing? But she stopped me in the middle of my tirade and said, listen, these are not any old cookies. These cookies don't have eggs. These cookies don't have flour. These cookies don't have sugar. 
these are banana cookies, banana oatmeal raisin cookies. She said that I've been seeing you work so hard and walk past those cakes and those pies. I've seen you and I asked you about the nature of your diet and whenever I brought a cheesecake or an apple pie, you had turned it down for the sake of your diet. I saw how you held up under pressure, so I brought something that you could eat. It's all natural, three simple ingredients, and you can eat it until your heart is content. And I did. <laughs> But what I want to say to you is, I learned in that moment what James was talking about. Is that if you can endure, there is one who sees your struggle, sees your endurance, and will honor, not just in the life after, but in this life, honor you with a crown of cookies. Amen. <laughs>